Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of the In Lockdown With podcast with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Manon Eames. Hi Manon, how's things? Hi, uh, okay, it's a nice sunny day at least today, stopped raining. How have you, been, how have you been coping with lockdown and stuff? Uh, well, it's not easy for anybody, is it? I think um, it's, it's particularly worrying for in the industry at the moment mm. um, I'm, I'm actually chair of the Writers Guild in Wales the Writers Guild of Great Britain right. which is the trade union for writers um, and I've been involved in an awful lot of meetings over the last oh, couple of months but particularly in the last week or so, last month or so with you know the, rele- the creative um, relief fund with yeah. the government and things like that um, so they are hard times, I mean currently uh, Currently, the good news is is that TV production is sort of starting mm. up again. Things are working under COVID rules, um, but theatre, of course, in Wales is closed, and that's a source of great concern because theatres are open under COVID restrictions in England, and they're not in Wales. Although Theatre Cloyd has been doing some experiments, and Theatre Cloyd is working very hard. So, mm. we are all the creative unions, Equity and the Musicians Union, and Back to, which is the television and film industries union and the Writers Guild are working very hard at lobbying the government to look at theatres. You know, it seems to be ridiculous that um, pubs are open and theatres aren't. What would it's much easier to enforce compliance mm. in a theatre than it is in a pub. Um, so we, we are lobbying very, very hard for that because it's looking pretty grim. But uh, What steps have... would you like the Welsh Government to take? Well, I mean, they should be... I, th- I think they should be looking at... Um, reopening theatres under Covid. Um, Cloyd, theatre Cloyd, for example, has reopened its main house, the, the main theatre we have to yeah. theatre, as a cinema, right. uh, with social distancing. So it seems a ridiculous situation where they're allowed to show a film there to about, I think it's about 80 people in a 600 house theatre. I mean, they're not, they're not making no. a lot of money, but they're keeping the building open. Um, so they can put a film on, but they can't put a singer on or no. a play on. Um, no. Even if they recorded the play in the studio, uh, you know, it's it's just kind of it's it's an anomaly. Um, I mean, I know there's an awful lot of considerations and lots of lots of mm. other things to go on, but you would think that, you know, um, there must be a way. I think there's a lot of problem. Much of the bigger venues, like the Wales Millennium Centre, of course, they're such a huge mm. uh, building. They are they are labouring under a different problem. In a, in a sense, it, they can almost not afford to open under COVID, but a lot of the smaller venues could, um, with skeleton staff and with you know the, mm. the you know the Theatre Muldans and the Torch and places like that yeah. could potentially open 
not making money, but just to keep keep their presence going, you know. So it would be nice if they would relook at, mm. at that and give. I think there's a feeling within the industry that they're giving, you know, that they they they're paying much more attention to the hospitality industry because there's more pressure yeah. from them, obviously, than they are to the arts. Although it has to be said, Welsh government have done very well in terms of trying to provide support for freelancers much better than the government mm, in England yeah. has done. Um, it's insufficient, but they're trying and they mm. do appear to be listening, so that's very good. Uh, we'll just have to see how the situation develops and we'll open the next few months and we'll see where we are in at the end of the year but there's a feeling maybe that that's going to be too late and maybe now is the time where we need to act and things need yes. to start to change otherwise yes, there won't be anything yes, left because of course the problem with theatre especially um, but uh, it's sometimes Italian is the problem with theatre is a lot of the theatres have postponed or cancelled a lot of the productions that would have happened yeah. this year which is great, they're honouring contracts and stuff, that's marvellous, that's what they should be doing. But of course the problem is that given that that work has now been cancelled and will probably happen next year, that means that there will be no new commissions, or could mean that there will be no new commissions and no new castings and no new work through next year at all, even if they reopen next year. So that puts that's new true. work two years down the line, in the worst case scenario. So that's the problem yeah. that we're trying to address with Welsh Government and um, yeah. anybody out there, you know, please write to your um, members of the Senate, write to your MPs, you know, uh, keep keep up the pressure mm. about the importance of the arts because, um, if you know, don't ask, don't get really. Is exactly, what I wanted to start by doing is what I start every podcast with, to be honest. I wanted to ask you how you first got interested in theatre. Okay, well, um, I always was. I can't remember a time when I wasn't, I suppose. Um, from primary school, I mean, being in a Welsh primary school, we were always singing and dancing and doing a step once and, you know... Um, yeah. It was the only Welsh medium primary school in Bangor where I was brought up at the time. Um, and of course, the, the, oh, I've lost you, have I? No. All oh, right. Oh, it's my, it's my machine. I haven't lost you. There we are. Good. Why I did that. Right. Okay, I'll start that again. Um, I, I think I've always been interested in theatre. Um, I was very lucky to have a, a Welsh medium education, really, mm. from, from primary school quite uh, many, many, many years ago. It was the only Welsh language primary school in Bangor in the area. Yeah. And, of course, we did an awful lot of singing and dancing and reciting and all of those sorts of things. So it was a part of our lives from very early on, I think. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, and then in secondary school, of course, um, I loved English literature. Um, mm. So, of course, we did read a lot of plays and we used to go and see plays. And my mother was a, a very, very keen on theatre and she used to do a lot of amateur stuff with Theatre Vach in Llangevny. Um, so I was often there when I was quite sort of 10, 11 and 12, helping paint sets and things like that so um it was always it was always there really and then um i did my i did a levels in english and french and history mm. no, yes english french and history and i got a place in manchester university to do and joint honors in english and drama which was 
quite a heavy course because it was a, a like a double honours, so it was doing a full English degree and a full drama degree oh, wow. in four years. Um, so there were only four of us actually in my year doing that course, mm. um, and I fell apart completely in the first year because I thought I can't do all this work; it's impossible. I can't. Did, did you know what you were letting yourself in for before you? Did you know what you were letting yourself in for before you went, or was it a big shock? Um, not quite. I didn't realise there was going to be so much work because, of course, there were two heavy subjects. Because with English literature, you've got so much reading to do, um, and then with drama, there was so much practical work that you know. Whereas a lot of students would have kind of like in those days, you'd have like maybe twelve or fourteen hours of lectures a week, and then the rest of the time was study time and work time. Yeah. I had double that plus more because we used to have practical drama sessions that were on a Tuesday and a Friday afternoon that went on for three hours in addition to everything so it was quite difficult to organize my time to get all the reading and everything done for English so for the first two years we did both subjects and then in the third year I did my finals drama and in my fourth year I did my finals in English um, the last two years were split but it was a good discipline because um, it it did teach me to manage my time and to prioritize things well Sort of. Um, it also taught me how to get round things and how to um, pull the wall occasionally. Oh yeah, we've all uh, I've done that. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all done that. It's all part of life, It's all part of your education, isn't it? You know. So yes, I, I but I loved the course. I did enjoy the course very much, and I was glad that I'd done it because. For all my passion in drama, I, I, I had a huge passion for novels. Um, right. for, I loved the Victorian novel, you know, Thomas Hardy and Charles Dickens mm. and um, all the George Eliot and all those big Victorian epics. I just yeah. loved the storytelling in those, which is which goes with drama as well, doesn't it? You know, so that Definitely. was kind of, I think my, my future fate was sealed by the two degrees that I did, really, I think. And, and, and is writing something that you've always done? Have you always been a writer? I, I, I used to write little novels when I was a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> and I used, to, I used to do them in very big writing so I could fill lots of pages. <laughs> <laughs> um, when, I, when, I was, actually, when I was about 13 or 14, I was quite interested in going into journalism. Right. Um, because I'm quite interested in politics. My father was a history teacher and was terribly interested in history. And my sister and I, there are two of us, we, we hated history in school, even though I did history A-level. Um, and he was always saying, I don't understand why you don't, I, why you don't love history. Now, he was passionate about history. He was a very charismatic and a very good teacher yeah. and loved his subject. And um, so um, I think... The, the, coupled with that and the drama, I was always kind of like trying to find stories. Because he used to say to me, you know, he used to say, history is stories. It's just the same as the novels you read. It's it's stories. It's about mm. people. Yeah. And um, he's a very political man as well. And so he got me interested in politics too. And so that's why I think the sort of idea to do journalism first came from this kind of right. mixture of politics and stories. Um, I never pursued that in the way because the, the, the love of drama took over. But yes, yeah, so mm. writing, I used to love writing essays. You know, I used to yeah. really enjoy writing essays um, in school. Um, and I, I, so I think I was just lucky. It was just something, you know, I was useless at maths and useless at science. Absolutely meant nothing to me. 
it was about um, your rights, it was about your rights to protest, it was about all sorts of things. Yeah. But um, within the context of the history of, you know, the copper women in Penclown, mm. um, that's a very good formula because it means it gives, again, it's telling a story, it's based in a historical fact, but it was a personal story and it, it gave the school so much um, that they could work on because they could work on, you know, interrelationships and personal relationships within families and as well as working on, um, you know, past history and about the industries yeah. that have been in the area. And I loved doing that. It was, it was, it was lovely to do that. We did lots of, we did lots of productions of schools based on, you know, there was some about evacuees. We did a project about evacuees. We did a project about coal. We did a project about shipping, you know, the yeah. maritime history of the area. All, all kind of rooted in West Norga and, and yes. the history of West Norga. Yes. Um. And then, of course, we were also doing... So we were, we were performing at the time, initially, we were, we were as all theatre companies were doing, we were visiting schools. Yes. So we were going to, um, you know, two schools a day, five days a week. Um, and then gradually, over time, when we moved to the Milland Road um, estate, to the unit there... Where Nanook is now? Right. Who was trying to <laughs> keep um, 
order in this community where they were all being turned into um, villagers in a, mm. in a mining museum and you know there's the villagers sudden realization that hang on we're being had here yeah. you know um and so they were all this kind of like ref re reflections on what um was happening within our community um, we did another one about loan sharks which was great fun um, what kind of response would you get from from the people, the community you're working with? Oh, we had great audits. We, we, it was fantastic. I mean, we, we used to go up to Bryn, up, you know, up behind Portal. I know, Bryn, yeah. And we'd be packed up there. And wow. resolved in rugby club. We used to have to go for two nights and resolve in rugby club. Oh. Because there were so many people there. We'd, we'd bug 200 people a night for two nights, you know. That's we incredible. percentage of Welsh speakers isn't very high. So I guess you went you went with the but was there a market for the Welsh language theatre? Surprisingly so, yes, more than you'd think. Um, because a lot of the Welsh societies we used to do we do yes, obviously Escavera, but there were places, you know, in Swansea, the Swansea the Swansea Welsh Society, they would always book us to do things. The Welsh the T I E work, we'd tour We'd do English language schools for about eight weeks and then we'd do about, well, we would translate that then to schools because the curriculum were, 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 they were the same curriculum in the world yeah, schools, yeah. schools. And then we'd do usually about two or three weeks for the Welsh schools to cover all the Welsh schools. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, the community shows we needed to go further afield. But there were more, yes, there were, there were we'd, we'd do the Welsh yeah. shows in Talbot. Yeah. Uh, in Talbot, we do them there. Come up in Comarvan, up in um, uh, obviously Glynneath. I think we used to mm. go sometimes. Um, and as I say, Swansea. Yeah, there are more mm. places than you think. Yeah. That, that's really good here, actually. Yeah. Um, oh, it was very vibrant. It was very busy. I mean, it was. Um, mm. We had a great time. We had a great time, and it's a great pity because. We built up massive audiences, you know, and, and yeah. those audiences aren't, get, aren't getting that anymore because the funding has disappeared for that kind of touring and, and you know, that kind of access because the tickets were really cheap. I mean, I think we were about 50p mm. or a pound or something, wow. you know. Um, so, yes, yeah, so they were good days. They were good days. And, and as well, you, you made work for not just theatre. Uh, um, but you were making work for the medium of film and television, if I've done my research right, this was also... Yeah, well, what happened was that um, because of the work that we were doing in schools, the history yeah. that we were doing in schools, um, the education departments at HTV, which no longer exists, of course, Harvey Television, 
they they got to hear um, of the work that we were doing, and so they approached us about doing a series for schools, um, using a similar kind of um, formula to what we were using in schools to deal with the history of Wales. Yeah. Um, so we agreed. So that that's 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 what we did. So we did thirty. Um, 30 programmes altogether in two series, so that was 60 because we did them all back to back, so they were done in Welsh and in English, yeah. with only four actors in, and we wrote them all, um, and the, all the extras were, were, were school children, we only used children right. um, for extras from various different schools and things, and um, yeah, it, 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 it was good, it was good, um, I mean it's a different... You would have to get, you know, you'd be trying to do, the, you'd have one bit of history, to like say the Romans, yeah. and we'd do the Romans in 24 minutes. It was a bit like Horrible Histories, really, yeah. before Horrible Histories. Um, and so we'd, we, and we had this bus, the idea was that we had this magic bus, this big blue double-decker, which I got to drive, which I got to drive. <laughs> um, and we would, the idea was that the four of us were on holiday in this bus, and we were travelling around Wales, and... Um, that's the dog drinking water you can hear. Yeah. Can hear <laughs> it's, not, it's not a flood. Um, and we, so the, the formula was that we'd travel around the Wales and we'd park up for the night and or park up for the day and something would happen. Usually one of us would find an object or we'd hear a song or something which would take us back in time. Yeah. And then that one person, one of the four of us would remain in modern day and would meet people from that period of time like um with with children working down the mines in Merthyr okay oh and all sorts all sorts yeah and the schools are still using them now unfortunately because HTV no longer exists I think there are Betamax tapes in them somewhere in fact I had a request last week from somebody from school saying our tapes are running out where can we access these these programs again because they're still using them 30 years later that must be a fantastic feeling to feel that you've created is still being used and still educating children 30 years on. Yes, it's wonderful. It's lovely. I wish they were more available. I really do. It would be easier if they were um, for people. But, uh, yeah, no, it's great. I mean, S4C did repeat the Welsh language versions about two years ago, I right. think. Um, but the English language versions have never been seen again, although, as I say, the schools are still using them, so... Um, I, I, I bet there were different challenges working filmically compared to making yes. theatre. Yes, certainly. You tell a story in a different way, mm. um, but we still very much kept to our principles of storytelling in that, you know, especially working for a, a young audience, you're hoping to get them to, you want to get their empathy, you want to get them to identify with one of the characters in the story so that they follow that character's journey and then they can relate to that experience, yeah. you know, that would, but obviously it was much, much, much more condensed in, um, in, in, in telly. We did, we filmed them all on film, actually. They were all shot on film, oh, wow. not on video. Um, so they look beautiful. They do, they really do mm. look lovely. Um, but yes, it was the same principle, but obviously you're very condensed. But, I mean, all storytelling is about that. It's about making choices. You know, you have your story in front of you and you're making a choice, whether that's an original story. I know you want to talk about adaptation. Yes. And it's, it's the same thing. You, well, that's my approach anyway. You know, you have the bare bones of this story. You have this story and you're going to try and retell it. And it's about a series of choices, the choices that you make 
where you put what what well, mm. often if what you leave out what you include um you know those those are the those are the main things it's a series of choices and decisions mm. about how you're going to tell your story i'm going to let her yes. So, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your writing process. And is it the is it the same with every project, or does it vary depending on what you're working on? Oh well, some things are very different, obviously. Um, I mean, for example, I write for Popular Cult, and I've mm. written for various other teleseries, and that's a completely different process, which I where I talk about later. If yes. Um, but. Yeah, m m I mean, mainly I have written um, I've written some original stuff, but it's often been based on you know other uh, stories that exist rather than original stories. Yeah. That's where I find my inspiration. I think it's just everybody's made differently, and that's 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 where I that's where I lock in. Um, and adaptation, I've done a lot of adaptation too. Um, both for um, the stage, I did all the three the three Alexander Cordell novels, Rape of the Fair Country, Host Rebecca, and Song of the Earth for Theatre Cloyd, uh, for stage, which were great productions. They were wonderful to do because, you know, they, that that again was fifteen. The resources were there. We had a cast of sixteen. Wow. Wonderful design, wonderful set, great director, great cast, great musician MD on it, um, and they they were they were they were a joy to do. Again, you can see there's a thread in here because it's politics and it's history and it's yes. epic story, you know. Um, um, and with those, I mean, Rape of the Fair Country was quite difficult in the sense that, you know, it's it's what, a 380-page novel and, you know, it's full of quite a lot of cliches, but it's also full of a lot of political rage about the injustice that was done to these people. It's about the Chartist Rebellion, you know. Right. Um, and... Uh, so obviously, to do it in, to produce a, you know a two-hour maximum stage version, even with a cast of sixteen, when there are hundreds of characters in the book and hundreds of things that happen, you know you have to be really, really um, clear about what you're leaving out. And that's actually the nicest thing that happened to me when when we first did *Rape the Fair Country*. Alexander Cordell was still alive. Um, and I met him. He came to see it, and I, I was terrified because he was in his eighties, and he was quite—he was quite a character. Right. And uh, he said to me before the show, he said, "Oh, well, my dear, many people have tried to do this, and they've all failed." I thought, "Oh, great, here we go." Fails you and he confidence. Came to me afterwards, and he put his hand on my arm, and he said, "You didn't leave anything out," and that was the best compliment he could have paid me because I'd left hundreds of pages out mm. but what he meant was I had understood his story and I had understood the essence mm. of his story it is so, is that the aim then when you're adapting to try and understand what the writer's original intention was it's, it's lots of things the way I do it Say you get asked, you get commissioned to adapt a novel. Um, the first thing is you have to really like the novel because you're going to be living with it for a long time. Um, I think, well, it helps if you like it. Um, the first thing I do is I read it as if I was just a normal person reading it and I wasn't going to adapt it. Read it quite carefully, but read it. 
and then I make notes about what my lasting impressions have been of it. And then obviously you have to make a consideration, are you adapting it for film or for telly or for theatre, you know, because they have different yeah. practical requirements. Um, and then I try and... I, what, what impressed me about Rape of the Fair, Rape of the Fair Country, for example, was Alexander Cordell's rage. That, that's what came over to me most clearly, was the, the sense of injustice and rage that he felt. Um, and it comes through in the writing. Um, and I also, I personally wanted to try and avoid a lot of the Welsh cliches as yeah. much as I possibly could. But although, of course, you've got to be, and then, and then you've got to be true to the original as well. So I then read it again, again, and make quite more detailed notes on my reactions to things and think, oh, that's, that's a really good, that's a really good incident, or that's mm. a really good way to explain Ten or fifteen other things, you know that that is the incident which crystallises what's happening in all those other ten incidents. So, for example, you know, I'll, I'll start making condensing notes about it, and then I read it a third time with um, a practical head on, and trying to work out, okay, which characters can you get rid of? Which characters can you double up? Who can you use to tell this part of the story that yeah. you've already used before? How can how you know this is the practical thing of it? Um, so I end up with by then I, the, it's getting the novel it's getting the original, the source text under your fingernails I think is really important to get it under your fingernails scratch at it so that you know you know what it feels like you know what this story feels like you know what, where it's come from you know where it's going yeah. you know, you, you've got it under your skin um, and then I always as well I like to do a lot of research around the area so a lot of scratching around like a chicken then, you know, sort of like doing more research about the Chartists, about, um, in that case... Um, so the, you know, the historical context of the period yes, and what the was going on. historical context and the social context and the political context, so that you really are in the story, you're, you're really in it. And it's only mm. then that I start to, well, for stage, for example, with Rape of the Fair Country, I knew fairly quickly where my interval was going to be. Okay. I knew where halfway was going to be, and that's not necessarily halfway through the book. You know, it's it's where you know you need to leave the audience wanting to more. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a big climax. So I'd worked that, so I knew, right, okay, so then, so I've now got it in two parts, so I now know I've got to get this much into this bit and this much into that bit. And then you start... And then you start writing, then you start being creative. <laughs> Even yeah. more creative then. Because you have to... That's why I say, for me, you know, I have to really like what I'm working with. Because you live with it for a long time. You have to mm. sort of get it in your soul, I think. I mean, there's a way of doing it where you don't do that. But I think, you know, um, you can do it technically. But I, th I, I think it helps. So that's the way I go about it. Uh, and I mean, that is the way I would go about... If you ask me to write a story about COVID, if you yeah. ask me now to write a play about COVID, that's exactly what I'd do. I would read loads and loads of um, newspaper articles. I'd lead, read a lot of political contests. I'd talk to people. I'd interview lots of people. I'd try and find really good stories, you know, people's personal experiences with it. And, you know, th that is what I 
would do with that and I would try and tell the story of COVID by those means. And, and um, d- does it always start with the external for you, if you like? You know, does it always start with, you know, other people's experiences or... Exactly, and I mean, I've seen examples, I only used, you know, my own personal experience here, but I've seen examples of films and plays about disabled characters written by non-disabled writers where the representation hasn't been very good. And equally, I've seen work by disabled writers where the representation hasn't been very good. So I'm not saying... So the thing is, it's I'm not saying that non-disabled writers can't write disabled characters. As long as you do the research and you know what you're talking about, you know what I mean? Exactly. Yes. Plenty of material at the moment, but yeah, oh. I do. I do feel. I'm beginning to feel. God, I need to write about this, you know. But um, I think I've, we're too much in it at the moment to be able yeah. to. I don't know. Maybe um, it's but, like we yeah. need to come out of and then reflect back on. Yes. Yeah. Oh, did yeah. that? Did that actually happen? Did Did 2016 yeah. to 2020 whatever yeah. actually yeah. happen? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think anybody wants to really <laughs> listening to it. Um, I mean, it was interesting when lockdown first happened, and a, a lot of the companies, because they'd lost, um, they wanted to get something on screen. You know, they did a lot of lockdown dramas. Right? Yeah. A lot of lockdown dramas that happened. But and I think, I mean, some of them, with varying success, some of them were quite good, some of them were really not good. I agree. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't want to go there. I want to watch Coronation Street again. You want a bit of escapism? Yeah. 
You want a bit of escapism from what's going on? Yeah. Um, I'm going to move on. And I want to talk about Eldra, which was based on interviews with Eldra Jarman. Yeah. How did you... How did this project come about? And okay. what, um, what was the process like? The process was... Um, it happened by accident, really, that Eldra Jarman was one of, uh, I think, about six women that were interviewed, who were all in their early 80s, who were interviewed for a programme that, um, I think it was a cooperative television company called Tuliesin, which used to exist then, produced for um, SOC. And, of course, she had a really... She was in her 80s then. This is back in the late 90s. Um, and she was such a fascinating woman. She was really interesting because she had been... She was pure Romani. Mm. She was brought up Romani um, outside Bethesda. Her, but her father was the gamekeeper for the Lord Penryn uh, right. of the Slate Quarries. Of course, the universally hated Penryn family who had, you know, I mean, there are people in Bethesda now who still won't go into Castle, and Castle, even though the National Trust own it, right. because, you know, mm. that's where the enemy lived. I mean, if you think of the Crochets and the Baileys and all the people in South Wales, the Penrins, especially what this one, because of the three-year strike, because he locked them out for three years. They went on strike in 1900, and they were on strike until 1903. And they, a lot of people died, and it, you know, it's deep in the memory. Now, her father was gamekeeper for him, that family right so and so she just mentioned that in passing and she said you know that they, they lived outside the village but she was her mother insisted that she went to school so she went to school with the village children but she hated it and she used to run around she just used to run around the mountains barefoot yeah. she played the harp she played the the the, the Del and Dales, the three string harp right because the, the Romanies um, in North Wales who all apparently descend from the family of Abram Wood and musical and they played for Queen Victoria there's a, there's a, there's an engraving of them all playing the harp about 12 men all playing the harp for Queen Victoria um, and they were all Romani um, from North Wales so she was connected to them and I just thought this is such a wonderful story and her father used to bring her she had a pet fox for a while um, because her father had rescued this fox from some poachers who'd, who'd killed the mother and he found the right. company's brought the fox and the mother said, you're not allowed to have this fox, but she kept the fox. And then one day the fox killed the chickens, of course. Um, uh. and so the fox had to be got rid of. Mm. Um, and uh, lots of stories like that. And so I just I just thought, this, these, this is, again, it's history. Yeah. And it was in the 30s, so it was, it was pre-war. So it was, again, this is me, me thinking about context. So you've got, there was such a rich context there because, she, you know, and I mean, we all know about the prejudice against the Romans and stuff. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there was, there, was, there was class prejudice there because he was working for Penrith. There was prejudice. But she said she didn't feel prejudice about being a Romany. They mm -hmm. were just treated as they, was dif they were different. But what did count was because they were musical, and because the people in Bethesda were also musical, yeah. their language was music. And so her father used to have these um, music nights um, to which a lot of the men from Bethesda would all go. And they'd have a big sing-song around the yeah. fire. 
And I just thought that all of this, just pre-war, and uh, this is the point at which Hitler is being elected chancellor in right. Germany. Yeah. You know, the context of all of this was so rich. I just thought, right, I, I, I would really like to write about this. So I um, have transcripts of the interviews. But there was no story there, you know, there was no, it was just a series of, oh, I had a fox and we used to sing and um, we, I used to run around the back. We lived in any, no, no order to it, no structure. No, no shape or story no. or structure. So I just went about it, trying to look at it, and this was for film, this was for a film. Yeah. Um, and so I just wanted to write about differing cultures meeting, really. Um, and but you know you want to try and avoid writing on the nose you don't want to be making it about no. that that's the subtext um, and I knew that I had to because she was an outsider because she was you know she didn't really have a lot to do with the other kids in the village because she was always with her father she had a goat she had you know and her mother didn't like her mixing too much with um, the people in Bethesda yeah um, because she said her mother used to call everybody Mrs. Jones, regardless of who they called. You know, so they call Mrs. Jones. Um, so I've got, I've got a scene in there, you know, where they go through time. She says, no, Mrs. Jones. Yeah. <laughs> and Elder says to her mother, are they all called Mrs. Jones? She says, no, of course they're not. I just can't be bothered to remember their names. So, you know, that's how you make a little story out of what is a fact. Um, so I knew I couldn't have her telling her story because she wasn't the kind of character or spirit that would tell her story. Mm. You know, she was quite happy, independent, on her own. Yeah. So I invented this little boy who was in love with her, um, who was quite an intellectual little boy in school, quite a quiet little boy in school. And I made it a summer holidays, their summer holidays, that one summer holiday. Uh, where he carries her books home from school yeah. um, and gets to know her over the course of the summer holiday. So I guess then happen. you're not committed to telling the story of a whole life. No. You've condensed it into one period of time. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, there's the moment in the film where she takes him home for the first time. Right. And they did it beautifully and he walks into this garden where the mother who looks Romany, you know, and she's feeding the chickens, and there's glass things hanging in the trees, and there's an owl on the post, and there's chickens all over the place, and all this oriental sort of, and we played some Romany, quite oriental sounding music, eastern sounding music. Um, and it's like he steps into another world, and he steps through that gate, and he's in another world. So it was about, and it's about those worlds, and then his elder brother, because then I had to get the sort of prejudice in as well. So yeah. I brought in his elder brother, who is not happy at all about his little brother mixing with them. Not because they're Romany, but because the father works for Lord Penrith. Right, yeah. And it's about class and um, history so as well as culture. So you've got these layers coming in, these layers of conflict. Yeah. So it's not just... So Yeah. Snippets of things from her interview. Oh, okay. Um, hmm? that's, no, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'd I'd like to talk about the three night blitz. 
um, which um, you wrote in 2016 from the ground which I saw and really enjoyed. Right. Um, what was the process of researching and writing the play like? And kind of similarly to Elder, finding that balance between reflecting events that actually happened and yeah. telling the story that you as a writer wanted to tell. Yeah, well, uh, originally, we, Theatre West Glamorgan, we did a play about um, the Three Nights Prince. It was called Smiling Through. Right. And we did it in 19... We did it on the 50th anniversary. So it must have been 1991, was it? Yes. It's a long time ago. Um, as a community tour. Right. And it was called Smiling Through. And it had lots of songs in it and things. And we did lots of research and that. And it was a, it was a good show. It was a lovely show. Um, so I'd already done a lot of research yeah. on it, and I had a lot of, sort of research knocking around, and I just thought it was all so interesting. And I, 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 have, I as you know, I've got a dog. Well, the dog that I had before this one, I was living in Mount Pleasant in Swansea right. And I used to walk my dog up over the top of May Hill and Town yeah, Hill. Yeah, I know. And you know the circular school at the top of the hill in May Hill, which yeah. you see as you drive into town. And the view from there of the bay is just amazing because you can see this huge open crescent and then the town comes up round the hills behind it, you know? Yeah. And um, I'd always thought about what an experience that must have been those three nights when those planes came from over there across that horizon, three nights on the trot. Um, what an experience it must have been. And so I'd already done some research on it. And then it, it actually happened. I met two little girls up there. Um, and they'd lost their dog. Right. Have you seen their dog? They said, no, I haven't. <laughs> what sort of dog is it? He's brown. Which is <laughs> not much help. Um, they both had, this is a true story, they both had little luggage labels tied to their car. So I said, what are those? They said, oh, we're doing evacuees in school. So I said, oh, really? Yes, that's my name there, see, because I'm an evacuee. Well, I'm pretending to be an evacuee. <laughs> so, um, and that just, and off they ran to find their door. And yeah. um, I was just standing there looking at this bay, and I just thought, gosh, look, what a story this is, you know, what a personal story, because it's the only consecutive night bombing in Wales. Um, right. And of course, you know, after the third night, when you think about it, they didn't know that there wasn't going to be a fourth and a fifth and a no. sixth and a seventh. They didn't know it was only going to be three. No. Um, and they thought, well, on the first one, they thought it was only going to be one. So when they came on the second, so the, the levels of fear, mm. um, really interesting. And the, the fact that the town is sitting there like a little jeweled sitting duck, literally. Mm. Um, so it just... It just got me thinking, I, I, I really wanted to write the story and I really wanted to research it more. Um, and then, of course, I realised that the anniversary was coming up in 2016, the 75th anniversary. So this was about three or four years before then. And I thought, well, I wonder if we could get some money together to do a production at the Grand yeah. um, for that anniversary. So there was a lot of hard work to try and get grant aid together and development grants and stuff. Yeah. And initially I worked with um, Roger Williams and with Helen Griffin, the late Helen Griffin, who I was 
very, very fond of. And we worked together to try and bash some kind of story together out of it all. Um, initially, we had thought about trying to make it a much bigger project and um, have things happening all around the town, you know? Yeah. Um, and maybe have people, maybe a bit more site-specific. Um, but it was just the logistics were impossible because it would be February, it would be cold, it would be raining, um, you know, it, 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 and I wanted it to be accessible. You know, I fear that an awful lot of these things that happen up halfway up a mountain or, you know, along a beach are yeah. not accessible to Joe Bloggs and, you know, the normal, normal mm. Swansea people. Um, and I also felt very strongly that a lot of people didn't go to the ground, that should be going to the ground, yeah. and that there should be something on there that spoke to them. Um, so it kind of brought lots of things together. So I ended up, so in the end, with one thing or another, and Helen was busy with other things, I ended up writing the play um, based on some of the work that we three had done together. And then I spent a lot of time in the archive in Swansea reading through yeah. stuff. And there's something about, you know, the actual, it's a bit, it was like who do you think you are, you know, with white gloves on, mm. turning the page of the actual mortuary book with the records right. of, you know, somebody being brought in, you know, how old they were, who they were identified by, mm. you know, it says uncle or father or mother, son, and then what's, what they were wearing, what they had on them. And then each one is a little story. You know, there's a little boy, there's a boy of 17 who I think I kept in the thing that was um, the, on the second night in the, the really big heavy bombing of, of May Hill, the Town Hill area. Um, he was 17 and he had on him, he was wearing a, 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 a blazer, a Sunday best blazer, and in his pocket there was a, pencil, a stub of pencil and a Christmas cracker joke. And I thought, my God, so maybe he hadn't worn that jacket since Christmas, mm. so it must have been his best jacket. And what was he doing out there? So maybe he was going to meet his girlfriend for the first night, you know. And yeah. he put his best jacket on. And that's just from a little piece of information. You know, I've got one of those brains that tries to find stories and things. Kind of jo joins the dots between exactly. little pieces of... Yeah, and creates stuff from yeah. then, you know? Um, and so I, from all those little... It's like what I did with Eldra, really. You know, you kind of take all these little pieces and all these little... And what it impressed me upon me, which is which is the, the, the main image of the Three Nights Blitz play, is how small all these little people are, and how yeah. small their lives are, and how tiny the detail of their lives is. You know how, and this massive, you know, must have felt like Armageddon. You know, all these planes yeah. suddenly come and start chucking all this bombs and incendiary bombs on the on these tiny little lives you know and that is what it must be like in syria now yeah. and in azerbaijan and you know th these people are just normal people with little tiny lives but um, yeah because because it's not happening here we don't think about the individual no. people oh. but no, th that but I, I did want to get that element actually into the three night splits but the way it worked out it couldn't go in except by resonance, really. Uh, you know, yeah. It couldn't, I, I couldn't, I 
I couldn't make it work because it was so specific, and I just hoped that the resonance of it was sufficient, you know. But it's about another, you know, I would always say to people, you know, if you want to write things, um, the late Michael Povey, who was a wonderful mm. Welsh writer, he always used to say, write about your own square mile, you know, we say in Welsh, the Michigan Square, you know, your, your, your own area in the sense of write about what you know about um, and I agree with that but what I would extend it to make it your business to know about what you're writing about you know uh, try and know about it try and feel it try and you know obviously I couldn't imagine what it was like to be sitting under a under, in a stairwell mm. And the, the Brinsovi Terrace story that was there was because I used to walk the dog along that road and I came across the story in the archive of these two little boys, of this little boy, Terry... Uh, no, Terry Absalom was the little boy that... Peter. Peter lived in one house and his friend Terry lived in the house in front of him. And on the second night, that house was bombed and this little boy, Terry, lost his best friend and he saw the bodies yeah. out on the pavement. And so I built them into the story and made them friends. And so we saw them on the first night out with the dog running yeah. around. And da, 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 da. I remember so, that, yeah. And that was because, and I stood in front of the house on Brinsovi Terrace where he lived, which is still there, and looked where Terry Absalom's house would have been. And it, it does give you a huge... I mean, your heart practically stops. Yes, because then you know, it, it stops being just something you're working about. And you're experiencing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's real yeah. in that moment. I, I am that little boy, or I'm that little boy's yeah. mother, opening the door that morning, and he looks out, and you think, oh my God, his friend's house has been bombed, yeah. how am I going to deal with this? You know, because I think that we can all, hopefully, as writers and creative people, we can all empathise and relate to basic human feelings. Yeah. And, you know, you, when you bring things down to basic human feelings and you can feel them and understand them or try to understand them then you can write you can write mm. them um that, that's how that's i feel really important that's really interesting yeah i think <laughs> I, I would agree with that um but before we finish i'd like to talk about publicum and you joined the racing team in 2011. yeah um what the challenges for you of working for a soap opera compared to other genres of TV or maybe compared to theatre? It's very interesting. It's very interesting because it's, 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 it's similar but hugely different. Um, <clears throat> the process is um, there are about, on Pubble, for example, there are about 30 writers because, of course, it produces well. It was producing know five nights a week and this is true of EastEnders and Coronation Street continuing dramas to use have a team of writers they have yeah. to have a team of writers because they're producing so much stuff I mean it's like a story machine it's like trying to stop the QE2 I mean it's just you know, it's massive it's massive they, yeah. they, they're on two, two and a half hours a week you know how much story that is eating up is just you know mm. um, so they have teams of writers so then, then they will have um, uh, a story department often probably has a story department and a script department so the story department will work with some of the writers to produce the stories for a period say with Pavel it's eight weeks 
eight or nine weeks. So they will produce a document which is all the stories that happened to all the people for that nine weeks. Yeah. They did sort of about nine months in advance of it ever getting to the screen. So we're, they're way ahead of what's on the screen. Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, that's all changed a little bit now because of COVID. Everything's, you know, it's really seat of our pants stuff mm -hmm. now. You know, it's really um, difficult. But um, so then they will then have eight or nine or ten writers will be writing those nine or ten weeks. So if you're, an, if you're a regular writer, you'll probably write a week. You'll write five episodes. Yeah. And if you're a new writer, you may write one or two or three, and then you'll get, you know, if you write well, you'll get more episodes. So you then have a meeting with all the writers with that block of stories, for which is probably a 140-page document of all the stories that happen to everybody. And it's split into weeks. So then they will say, Madam, write week five. So then I've got week five. I've got all the stories that they want to happen in week five. And um, is, that, is, like that. is that structured into episodes at this point? No, no, it's no. not. It's not. Um, that's the challenge, really. So you've got all these stories, and it has to be like this, because otherwise writers would be going off piste all the time, and mm. things would be happening that didn't make sense. So you have all the stories that you need to get into your five weeks, and then you will have a conversation. I mean, obviously, some of it would be obvious that some of them are main stories and some of them are smaller yeah. stories. Some of them would be stories that start and end in your week others will be ones that have begun before and carry on and then go yeah. further so um, you'll have a meeting then to discuss what they think are the main stories that you need to really focus on but you then also so if you're writing five episodes you've also they are, you've also got to have um, uh, your producer's hat on the writers have to do all of this so an episode is a maximum like 23, 24 minutes by the time you've got titles and, and an ad break in the middle. You're allowed 90 scenes over the course of the five episodes uh, okay. maximum. You're only allowed, and of those, a percentage has to be in studio. Only a percentage can be out on the street lot. Yeah. And then only, say, six or eight can be anywhere else, external, OB, outside broadcast. Yeah. You then also have a list of all the actors who are available, because if some of the actors have got a very heavy storyline in the week before, you can't use them. So it will say maybe you can only use her for six scenes, because she's got 12 scenes or 20 scenes mm -hmm. in that one. Yeah. So basically, you've got all your story there, you've got all these other considerations now. Okay, well, I can only use him for five scenes, so they better be good scenes, and I, can, oh, and I can't use him at all. And, or somebody may be on holiday or you know so yeah and I've only got 90 scenes so I've got to split those over the over the five episodes so you then make a grid where you say well these three strands are what will happen on Monday these three on Tuesday these three four on Wednesday these three four and this will be the cliffhanger on Monday the cliff on yeah. Tuesday the cliff on you know this will be the half time on each one of those and th at the bottom these are the characters I'm using and that's got to add up the number of characters you're using has got to add up to 65 the whole week. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of maths, <laughs> really, really, really difficult. <laughs> but it's also quite similar. I enjoy it because it's yeah. very different, but it's similar to what I do anyway. Did you enjoy it when you started? Or did it take a while oh, to I get in? How long, how long did it, 
How long did it take you to be like, right, I know what I'm doing, this is what I've got to do, and now I'm just going to do it? Do you know what I mean? Well, not the first time. I think I wrote two episodes the first time. The first job they gave me was two episodes, and I learned very quickly. Watch um, 
you know, a lot of the anti-live things, a lot of the newer plays are, yeah. are available online and things. Look at the way really good plays are structured. You know, look at why has why has the playwright made that choice? You know, why has he decided to make that happen there and not there? You know, develop those critical faculties, which you can then use to apply to your own work. Um, yeah. Really I think I, I think that's what I'd do, and I'd walk the dog. Yeah. <laughs> Learn to cook. <laughs> I, I need to do that don't at some point. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't, no. don't give up. Whatever the government says, don't give up. No. Um, don't. don't. Yeah, there's, not, there's lots you can do to keep to keep, mm. keep yourself sharp. Um, and complain and lobby for money for the arts. You know, yes. Get, get get involved. Um, and you know. And and you know. But, you know, I feel, as someone who's just starting out, I don't know enough about unions and stuff like that to get involved. I just feel I don't have the information. Fair enough. 
But if somebody there is getting paid to put that out, then you should all be getting a cut of that. It's very simple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that it's difficult to ask those questions, but they need yeah. to be asked. They need, they need to be asked. Yeah. Yeah. It's free is not an option. Mm. It's worth reading. It's very interesting. Because especially now with, you know, Netflix and Amazon and all these people, I'm not accusing them of anything, but, you know, we've had as a union lots of examples of people whose ideas have been nicked yeah. uh, because they've signed a contract. You know, somebody's run a competition saying, oh, you know, and then you get into the final six and they say, oh, write us a sitcom. And then you find that you've signed a contract that gives them 100% rights over those yeah. sitcoms, that sitcom. You know, you've got to be really careful in this day and age because that is happening. It's not happening across the board, but you've got to, if anybody offers you a contract, read it very carefully. Okay. And if you're not sure about it, ask someone who knows to read it for you. Thank you, Mama. It's been brilliant. Talk to you. Thank you, Michelle. I'm. No problem um, at all. It's been lovely to chat to you as well. And I will see you on the next episode of In Lockdown with. Um, yes. I'll see you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown with. The podcast is written, produced, and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.